1: Welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring you a book that I saw uh, a book talk on recently, and I said, "You know what? I need to have uh have these guys on my podcast." And lucky enough, uh they were able to facilitate that. So today I have uh, Dr. Edmund Hammond of University of Nebraska at Lincoln, uh and he co-edited this book with uh Stanton Wortham and Enrique uh Marillo, and this is Revisiting Education in the New Latino Diaspora. Uh this is Education, Policy and Practice Critical Uh Cultural Studies, and it's Information Age Publishing 2015. Uh Dr. Hammond, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Uh if you could maybe just uh, tell us how this project came together. You three are the editors, but you have uh, it's quite a large volume uh, uh, with other contributors. So can you kind of tell me how it came together and, and uh, how you worked on it?
0: Actually, there's there's two answers to that in the sense that this is a follow-up, entirely new, but it's a follow-up to a 2002 volume called Education in the New Latino Diaspora. And that also was the three of us as editors, um, Enrique Medio, Stanton, uh, Wortham, myself, um, and in a sense, there's a creation story about how that came together, and then there's a lapse, and then there's a creation story about the new volume. Um, so the the and I'm going to briefly walk through the old volume first because it explains how the new volume is a in a sense a response to that. Sure. Um, the old volume, which um, is 2002, Education in the New Latino Diaspora, uh, uh, Enrique had done his doctoral work in uh, Chapel Hill at the University of North Carolina. Um, Stanton Wortham at that time had yet to come to the university of Pennsylvania. He was at a liberal arts college up in Maine. Uh, and I, uh, was actually a, uh, well, I guess I had graduated by 2002 by the time the book had come out. I graduated in 1989, but I had done field work in Georgia and earlier while well, I was getting my master's degree in Kansas and all four of us, uh, based on different, uh, projects had looked at Latino populations, um, in new parts of the country, uh, meaning in parts of the country that historically it had little or no, uh, Latino presence. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a history of discrimination or racism in a sense that needed to be remedied and overcome, but nor was there a history of welcome and, um, embrace and, uh, agent of inclusion. Um, and so uh, our first volume, um, collected, uh, case studies from, uh, all over the country. Uh, we each, uh, included our own work in that. Uh, but there were also, uh, I think eight or nine other pieces, uh, one from rural Western Illinois, one from Indiana, one from a resort community in Colorado, um, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. At any rate, uh, back, you know, circa 2000, um, you know, and, and most of the field research was completed pre, nine eleven, pre sort of America's, um, sort of new um, militarization of the U.S. border Mm -hmm. before what I would characterize as a sort of neo-xenophobia. It wasn't that there wasn't racism and resistance to newcomers arriving circa 2000, but I would say it's of a different type and degree um, uh, currently. At any rate, uh, so our our storyline, if if you will. I mean, they're all empirical, uh, mostly ethnographic studies, but our storyline was the interaction is often improvisational. It's often well-meaning it's often amateurish. Um, there are tensions related to whether newcomers are seen sort of completely as parents, as human beings, uh, or if it's more narrowly, uh, as English learner, if you're talking about school or worker, if you're talking about communities, um, but the, there was an intentional um, and, and sort of intentionally naive optimism to the first volume in the sense that we weren't necessarily in a position to talk about, you know, broad, successful responses, but nor were we in a position to lament broad, um, problematic responses. Sure. And uh, so came out. Almost all of the sites were rural. And, uh, you know, we all continued on in our careers and, and did additional things. and. The, you know, book got decent press and was uh, reasonably broadly circulated. And um, then in 2009, um, classic, and I've got to think what that stands for. C L A S E at the university of Georgia, uh, decided to host what it called the first triennial conference, uh, on Latinos and Latinas in the United States, something, uh, akin to that, uh, but looking basically at education, opportunity, diaspora. And, uh, you know, it was ironic that it was called the first triennial conference because, as best I know, there's never been a second or third. And, mm. you know, by their <laughs> math, it would have been 2012 and 2015. Right. But at any rate, at that first one, uh, it was actually the first time that Enrique Stanton and I uh, were all together uh, physically in the same place for a sustained period of time. I, I by the idea we'd cross paths at AERA or something like that. <laughs> but uh, this was longer. And there was an idea of, well, what if we put together a new volume? and new case studies. And I had been working uh, with a woman actually at the university of Georgia named Linda Harclaw. Um, she and I had put together a chapter for the handbook on Latinos in education. And that was a massive production, about 60 chapters um, that Enrique Murillo had um, headed. And in that uh, piece that Linda and I did, so the um, Homin and Harclaw 2010, um, we talked about, um, limitations of the first volume and and not negatively, meaning the first volume got a whole bunch of things out and on the table, but there were things that, uh, now that the field in a sense was up and running that needed or, or merited additional attention. So for example, geographically, um, our first volume hadn't looked at all at the Pacific Northwest. Oh, maybe we should have something in the Pacific Northwest. It had been almost all rural field sites. Um, and the new volume includes, um, some urban and suburban areas. Um, The first volume was almost all K-12 centric. The new volume looks at, um, uh, there's one chapter on early childhood education by Jennifer Adair. Uh, There's three chapters that look in different ways at higher education, one by Catherine Richardson Bruna, um, one by um, Adam Sawyer, and then one by Socorro Herrera and Melissa Holmes uh, talking about the Visitos program at Kansas State University. So at one level, the new volume was, let's fill in some holes. Um, Another actually, I think really interesting chapter in the new volume. Uh, It talks about the experience of uh, Latin American origin, Latin American identifiable adoptees Mm. as a population growing up uh, often in uh, mixed race families. um, And, you know, often to white parents, and sort of the question of how well are, how well positioned are white parents to understand and promote sort of identity development um, of kids who uh, <laughs> quite distinctly physiologically different. Right. Um, and, you know, there's, again, it's sort of raising up the issue that that too is part of the new Latina diaspora experience. At any rate, so the new volume sort of got cooked up in 2009 at this uh, class A uh, conference, this triennial convening. And uh, then it was just a matter of sort of looking out and about for uh, prospective chapter authors. Um, we used uh, the the chapter that uh, I did with Linda Harklaw for the Handbook on Latinos in Education. We actually used as the first chapter for the new book. That's mm. the only one that's really uh, a reprint. And even then, it's not completely a reprint uh, because we kind of use it as an explanation here according to our 2010 analysis is where the field needs to turn next. Uh, And then we added um, literally italicized sort of paragraphs. We added how this 2015 volume uh, attended to some of that. So, um, but anyway, uh, I would argue one more important point is that the new volume is, is more skeptical or even critical. Uh, You know, these places often have had 15, 20, 25 years, to mount, um, institutional thoughtful responses. Um, and you know, it's not that there are no stories of success anywhere, but, but by and large, if you look at high school graduation rates, if you look at continuation rates on four year colleges, if you look at achievement test scores, if you look at, um, uh, sort of community ideologies about inclusion and exclusion, there's still a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's not, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give somebody a, a temporary pass of oh, improvisation, meaning well, trying to figure it out. But if 20 years on, you're still trying to figure it out, there's there's an additional storyline, mm-hmm. uh, and there's something, uh, in a sense, less flattering uh, about what what one needs to describe.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, if, if we could maybe jump into to some of the parts of the book, and you and you actually have it broken up into into three sections. Uh, the intro, of course, which you kind of talked about. Um, but then the, the section two, actors, improvisational, local practice, which you sort of have off to the side, grassroots to policy. Uh, right. And can you kind of maybe talk about sort of how that section? Uh, what sort of some of the themes, or, or maybe even if you want to get into any of the specifics that uh, that can really capture what that?
0: Means. Sure. Uh, well, and so this this book fits into a series that more than anything has an anthropological take on um, policy implementation. Mm -hmm. And so uh, traditionally in in a number of fields, we tend to think of policy in a kind of top-down nature. You know, policymakers understood as political leaders someplace cook up an idea. And then the question is how do the different um, people uh, who are charged with various responsibilities in relation to that policy, how do they perform uh, those tasks. And actually, the third part of the book somewhat follows a, well, if this is the policy, what happens on the ground? Um, Here, I mean, policy ideas don't come from nowhere. They come from often anecdotes, often direct personal experience. And so when we say grassroots to policy, the idea was to frame um, particular circumstances and and really point as a question, well, what about policy? Um, What about larger frameworks that would be responsive? So Erica Bruning, uh, who actually was a doctoral student at the University of Nebraska when she was doing this research, and now is at uh, Nebraska Wesleyan University, uh, she studied a uh, high school um, where there were four identified English language learners, so four out of 600 kids, and you know she calls it a low-incidence population, and you know I think they're very interesting and real questions what is the capacity as well as the responsibility of a school to respond to four kids, you know, Mm -hmm. less than 1% of their total population. Um, And, uh, you know, and there's not an awful lot of familiarity and there's not a lot of understanding as to what ought to happen. But it follows that if you're looking at a phenomena like a diaspora where you've got growing populations in more and more areas, this low incidence reality is happening more and more commonly in a lot of different places. And if you added up, you know, if you could find 200 places in Nebraska with, you know, uh, at least one identified English learner, but say less than five, um, and I'm sure we have 100 schools like that, if not a thousand, in the state of Nebraska, and then multiply that uh, in many other places across the country, you suddenly realize that numerically, because uh, at one level we're making the argument that uh, education policy needs to figure out mechanisms where in widely dispersed low-incidence populations, there's nonetheless some thoughtfulness, some responsiveness to how these kids are situated and what they need. Um, Fortunately, we're finally in an era in American history where if this was a particular special education population, for example, you know, you start to see a response. And I would argue that, well, ELs and special ed are importantly different in a whole bunch of ways. Uh, And I'm not trying to lose that point. But if we can respond to low-incidence populations in one scenario, presumably we need to figure out a way to respond to different low-incidence populations in another. Sure. So anyway, that's, you know, a grassroots to policy. Let's look at a particular case, a particular instance. talk about how, well, this case may be particular in terms of details. It's hardly a unique uh, scenario, and, and there needs to be some sort of larger-scale thought about what to do about it. Um, if you look at Chapter 3, the Luis urieta uh, Lan Colano and, uh, June Ojo, uh, chapter learning from the testimonio of a, and this is in quotes, successful undocumented Latino student in North Carolina. Um, actually it introduces the term testimonio, which shows up again in several of the other chapters. And I think it's an important idea. And I'll circle back to that. Sure. Um, but in brief chapter three, and I won't do this with every chapter, mind you, but this is a, a useful second example. Right. Um, in three, uh, you know, basically, um, Luis and his colleagues were interviewing this um, uh, college graduate uh, as part of a different research project. And then, uh, you know, it was in a a recorded interview. And he, I think, trusted the interview process enough, the interviewee, um, that he uh, felt safe uh, basically articulating at length and in detail a complaint. You know, he was frustrated that constantly he was, you know, being asked, when people talked a little bit about his background and circumstances, uh, he was undocumented, but he'd been able to secure, um, through the assistance of some others, um, scholarships to uh, get through uh, four year um, university experience, earn a degree. Mm-hmm. And people were like, oh, aren't you grateful? Isn't that terrific? How many people sort of helped you? And his, uh, at least superficially surprising response, not necessarily surprising if you think about it, was, no, I'm angry. And, you know, that set up the question, well, why are you angry? Didn't lots of people sort of generously figure out a way to have you move around all of these obstacles? And his point was, why were there all of these obstacles that needed moved around? Um, And, you know, he was somebody who'd come as a kid to the States, uh, bought into an American storyline about, you know, study hard and you'll advance, uh, you know, this generation ahead of the generation that precedes it and so forth. And... uh, but you know, concurrent to some version of welcome, some version of school saying, uh, we'll help you develop academically, it was also constantly telling them, but you're different, we're going to need to make special accommodation, here's uh, an obstacle we'll throw at you that we don't throw at anybody else. Um, and so uh, it was uh, ultimately, um, even though it was successful from a did you get a degree standpoint, it was quite fraught and problematic. Um, and I think he articulates quite movingly, and, and, you know, this is one case, but again, back to policy at a larger scale. He articulates quite movingly the Dreamer case. Um, Dreamer meaning the Dream Act um, pending legislation that has been, you know, up for consideration for 14 years in a row now by Congress and it's yet right. to pass. Uh, but this idea of uh, students who come here as children and then have the developed capacity to contribute substantively. Uh, to American public life and yet we restrict them and, and don't come up with means to do that. So from a grassroots to policy standpoint, here again is you know a, a particular case, particular instantiation, and yet it's in service to a larger argument. Um and uh I would make the point that the remaining chapters in this section, uh, each telling uh, sort of different pieces, um continue on um, in that vein. Uh One of the sort of uh, undergirding uh, theoretical frameworks of the book, uh, we propose as a definition of policy, um, and what policy to talk about putting our kids to bed in the evening, or policy to refer to something as uh, substantial as No Child Left Behind, uh, I would argue that all policies share three ingredients, a problem diagnosis, strategies for the problem's response, And then a um, imagined uh, better world where if the policy is enacted, here's what the new reality is supposed to come look like. And so these first, uh, these chapters in this section, chapters um, two through eight, really, um, in a sense, lay out problems. Here is something that this case says this is problematic and you might not have thought of it as a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, They're less uh, prescriptive in the sense of laying out strategies for what, ought to happen uh, other than well, and that varies actually. Some of the chapters uh, do say more than we need to think about this. They propose particular solutions. Uh, And all of them imagine a world um, where uh, newcomers, where the um, student and family populations that we're talking about um, feel more welcome, um, are allowed to be more agentive and, uh, you know, a diverse, inclusive, um, more peaceable uh, society is in a sense the uh, the imagined new uh, reality uh so in that sense, grassroots to policy very much is uh, let's identify problems, possible strategies to remediate the problems in a better world and and they point in that direction uh, but the in a sense they're an argument for policy rather than examination um, of extant policy or there are arguments for new policy that doesn't exist, even if they critique. Uh, to some extent, some existing practices.
1: Sure. And so then the the next section, uh, section three, which is the next half of the book, uh, basically it talks about existing, it's titled Existing Infrastructure uh, Response. So uh, can you kind of talk about how that is sort of organized and maybe uh, is it a sort of response to those things that uh, you're maybe suggesting in, in the first part? Um, or that would just naturally have occurred, even if they're not sort of things that, that maybe you would recommend?
0: Uh, they're not direct responses, but I would say they are indirect responses. And uh, if anybody looks at the table of contents and recognizes that when I was talking about, you know, section two of the book, and I said chapters two to eight, and they're like, but wait, it ends with chapter nine. <laughs> uh, chapter nine and chapter 17, uh, nine at the end of section two, 17 at the end of section three, both proposed to be sort of composite cross case analyses of the sections that they're part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the case of section three, which you've um, just brought up, uh, we basically look at things like, um, teacher preparation. Um, and actually we look at that in a number of different ways. Uh, so, uh, chapters 10 and 11, um, 10 is by Francis Contreras, Tom Stradekos, Catherine Torres, and Karen O'Reilly Diaz, uh, looks at teacher attitudes across the state of Washington. Um, so there's an example from the Pacific Northwest. And But looking at whether uh, new, um, and I should say newish, there's the history of migrant agriculture in uh, Washington that's quite uh, multi-generational. But at any rate, in terms of an established uh, and growing population, it's a new phenomenon. And they look at teachers, largely white teachers, uh, making sense of these newcomers and scrutinize Uh, Are the academic expectations the same? Are they different? uh, Things like that. But the policy, in a sense, that is being examined is the state-endorsed protocols for what readies a teacher. And then they juxtapose, well, you know, this is what uh, teacher preparation is supposed to entail. And then these are what teachers are telling us uh, about extant realities in schools. Mm -hmm. And then you can ask questions about the teacher preparation. Does it do what it should? Does it do what it can't? Um, and that's, I think an important question, but we're calling it a policy question sort of coming down, uh, you know, from, because the, in this case, teacher preparation policy is long standing as well established and we're juxtaposing, uh, empirical information, uh, vis-a-vis, uh, described policy. Sure. Um. In a similar vein, uh, Jenna Dare's chapter, uh, Chapter 11, Early Childhood Education and Barriers Between Immigrant Parents and Teachers Within the Latino Diaspora, she looks at um, uh, two cases, one from Iowa, one from uh, Tennessee, uh, uh, of uh, preschool teacher readiness and preschool environments where uh, newcomer Latino children uh, form large parts of the enrollment, and invariably the teachers talk about how they want more parent involvement, they want more parent engagement, and the um, parents suggest that uh, they have at least some skepticism as to whether their feedback, in fact, is fully and completely and without um, qualification uh, welcome. And uh, with some degree of accuracy, uh, she shares cases where, you know, parents finally do feel that they can be candid about What their kids experience and what they're hoping for. And um, not surprisingly, but sadly, it leads a little little bit to a um, defensive response on the part of uh, some of the preschool teachers. Mm -hmm. And, And this is, we're calling this an examine of, you know, policy response. Again, this is, you know, the posture of the teachers is, you know, here's a problem. We need more parent engagement. And yet when they get more parent engagement, they don't actually necessarily want it uh, because it includes messages that challenge worldviews that uh, suggest changes in strategy that they're not willing to um, uh, to necessarily pursue. So, you know, I mean, it's perhaps a little bit just trying to come up with the organizational logic of a book in terms of big part two, big part three. Yep. Uh, but we, we would propose here that the starting point is, you know, what's extant policy where these preschools, you know, how do they imagine a, a client population in this case parents, and, and what do they do about it? And that's the sort of existing infrastructure, the school responding to the changing demographic, um, a changing blend and mix of parents, mm-hmm. um, and what are they doing about it? So when we say infrastructure responds, you know, it turns out that in the New Latino diaspora, that um, and we're particularly interested in education institutions, uh, but we look at how. Uh, the uh, different uh, prospective stakeholders are involved and how the institutional infrastructure that preexists these stakeholders uh,
1: responds. Okay. Well, I know you have to get, uh, get running here pretty soon, but uh, maybe just uh, one or two more questions. Uh, Go ahead. I- I- If you could, I know uh, there were uh, sort of innovative methods kind of used in this, and one that I found particularly interesting is sort of some people were videotaped themselves talking things like that, and you also, we're able to come up with sort of a documentary out of, I think some of these studies. Um, and, and maybe just, uh, once you answer that, if, if you could just last word on the book, what, what you hope people uh, take away from it.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, the, um, uh, in some sense, the book is the dry academic. This is, uh, you know, careful, formal empirical analysis and study. And I absolutely want to stand behind it for that. Um, but it's also the case that if you if you ask a broader question about education in the Latina diaspora, um, you know taking field notes and analyzing them is not the only strategy available. Mm-hmm. And if a goal is to communicate things that we're learning um, and have the things that we're learning be consequential for uh, changed policies, uh, then we can ask questions: Is a book the only? Um, mechanism available to us to do that, or are there other ways of sort of capturing some of what's going on and sharing it with audiences? Uh, so in the presentation at Teachers College that you saw mm-hmm. that you alluded to, um, uh, Stan Wortham, my uh, co-editor, uh, shared some video of work that they have done in a uh, mid Atlantic suburb of a big city. Uh, and you know, they chronicle, um, Sort of new uh, ethnic fair kind of celebrations uh, down on Main Street. They uh, chronicle how um, this is a community that uh, before and after World War II welcomed large numbers of Italian Americans. How this elderly Italian American population and then their second generation children make sense of oh well this is just the newest wave of newcomers and we were newcomers and sort of the uh, the processing that goes on. And I think that uh, video footage. Uh, and some, you know, there's the old storyline, that picture, you know, shares a thousand words. I think that, uh, uh, these initial forays into additional mechanisms to share information, uh, are promising sure. in part because it, it engages people in a, a broader sensory sense. You hear stuff, you see stuff as well as, uh, just reading and imagining from text. Uh, so that, that's part of what you're talking about, um. And then we also showed a clip from a, uh, uh, which isn't otherwise part of the book, um, although we do have two chapters in the book that are from Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is a a documentary um, that um, a former student and a friend of hers uh, put together. The documentary is called uh, When We Stop Counting, and it was ultimately produced by Nebraska Educational Television. And they do a nice job of... uh, Uh, basically a year in the life of six uh, Latino and Latina um, students in Crete, Nebraska. Um, Crete is a meatpacking community. It's recently become a majority Latino school district enrollment. And these reasonably successful students in different circumstances, one becomes the first uh, Latino president of his high school's National Honor Society, for example. Um, They reflect on what it's like to grow up in a smallish town. The town population is about eight thousand. Um some of the surrounding farmland feeds into the school district. So it you know may have a service area of about ten thousand people. Um the high school is eight hundred kids and these are six of them. And they yeah. sort of walk through um their experience. And uh you know one of the things that we would claim is, you know, in complement to this book there are other pieces that are also capturing dynamics of what we're calling the new Latino diaspora. Um, and, and mind you, let me go back actually as a, a final word on this idea of new Latino diaspora. Um, we realize in the 2010 Haman and Harkalat piece in the handbook on Latinos and education points out that in claiming that this is a new phenomena, we risk, um, at least it uh, depends location by location, but we risk um sort of uh, erasing a history. So, for example, uh, Maria Herrera Sobek, who's a folklorist, has chronicled corridos, which are simplistically characterized as Mexican folk songs, talking about uh, Mexican workers and steel towns in Indiana and Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and so forth, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century. And, you know, we're looking back at these communities and saying, oh, this is a new phenomenon. And if it's entirely new, then, well, what about those histories of people 100 years earlier? What about this neighborhood in Detroit called Mexico Town? You know, how did it get that name? Uh, so in, in using the word new, um, part of what we're trying to highlight is that at scale, uh, there's phenomena going on. Uh, there's improvisation and new sort of problem identification, problem solving being attempted um, in more places and at a scale different than previously happened. Uh, we're not going from zero to 10. Uh, but we are depending on the place, perhaps going from two to eight, you know? And so, uh, there is something new, uh, although that doesn't mean nothing ever, uh, like this has happened in these places before, uh, varying place by place. Uh, so that, that caveat matters, but we would hold on to the idea that, you know, in provoking readers to think about, well, is this new? Um, part of what we're doing, I think is, is describing scenarios that they otherwise might not have thought of, um. And I guess as scholars, our our ultimate faith is in the idea that if you put ideas and experiences and information in front of people, you position them better uh, to understand the world and then make decisions about what would be fairer, what would be more inclusive, uh, what would be more responsive, uh, and and even give them some ideas as to what they can do. They, the reader, uh, to help make that so. Sure. Um, Our target audience, for example, uh, is undergraduates, you know, in college, pre-service teachers, I use this book. uh, I teach a class called School and Society. I use it with, you know, 200 students a a year um, through that venue. Uh, We also would use it in graduate classes where you get superintendents, you get principals, you get, you know, sort of people coming back to university for an additional degree. Um, And, uh, you know, we want, uh, you know, for a handful of readers, this will be like, at last, my story is being told. Mm. And and for a bigger number of readers, oh, I hadn't thought of that. This is interesting, you know. And both of those responses, uh, I think, matter.
1: Okay, well that that sounds good. Uh, I know you have to go. Uh, one final question, quick elevator pitch. What are you working on next?
0: <laughs> uh, that's uh, plural and complicated, but the quick version is uh, I've also been part of a project for about fifteen years, looking at kids in Mexican schools uh, that have prior experience in the U.S. We tend to think of Mexico and Latin America's sending area, oh, they send us family. Uh We don't normally think through how um, some of that migration is circular. Mm. And there are folks here who end up there. And, uh, you know, if you can imagine a kid with a last name like Ramirez uh, went through kindergarten through grade seven in Oklahoma, and then they're suddenly in a school in Zacatecas, Zacatecas. How ready is that school and how ready is that child to suddenly switch and go to school in Spanish for the first time? That child may have grown up in a household where Spanish was used at home, but it really wasn't a big presence in Oklahoma schools. Uh, so we're starting to ask questions about how Mexican schooling, particularly Mexican public schooling, is challenged, and Mexican teachers are challenged by a growing population of kids with experience in both countries. Okay. So that's next. Fantastic.
1: <laughs> well, we'll look into that. I know you have to go. So I, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Hammond, for, for joining me today, and I want everyone to check out Revisiting education in the new Latino diaspora. And uh, to all my listeners, I hope you learned mm-hmm.